You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org. Good afternoon, everyone. And subscribe wherever you find your podcast. We might get started. Thank you so much for your patience. We're just running a few minutes behind uh, time. So I might just start with an acknowledgement of country. And we've got an incredible panel here today. So wonderful to see you on. And we're really looking forward to talking about this very important topic in relation to design excellence. The City of Melbourne respectfully acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we are meeting on, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin and pays respect to their elders past, present and emerging. We are committed to our reconciliation journey because at its heart, reconciliation is about strengthening relationships between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples for the benefit of all Victorians. So welcome. Um, I'm Jocelyn Chu. I'm the Director of City Design at the City of Melbourne. And um, I'm very excited to be um, bringing the second event of our M Talk, the Excellent City series to you today. Um, 2021 was a big year for design at the city. In October, we launched two formal design forums, the Design Excellence Advisory Committee. It's very strange to be in the centre. I might just sort of pop back here a little bit. <laughs> so I can see you all and I think you can still see me. So in October, we launched two formal design forums, the Design Excellence Advisory Committee and Melbourne Design Review Panel. These forums are key components of our Design Excellence Program. Amendment C-308, Urban Design in Central Melbourne, was also approved and introduces a revised design and development overlay along with the Central Melbourne Design Guide. In developing this series, the Excellent City series, we were keen to open debate on what design excellence means. We see the series as a forum through which to explore this with experts from consulting and academia as well as our communities and the broader public. This year, we're exploring themes of equity, of resilience and Aboriginality. We're excited to showcase some of the thinking that is already informing design at the city and to use these conversations to identify areas for further address and development. We hope this will be the first of an annual series of talks on the excellent city. Today's topic of design yarning will explore the idea of how we see Melbourne as an Aboriginal place. The discussion has evolved from a series of design yarns initiated by City Design in 2020 with our colleagues in Aboriginal Melbourne. And these conversations are helping to grow our knowledge of the role design can play in supporting reconciliation and to increase cultural awareness and capacity in our work. Recognising and celebrating Aboriginal culture in our built environment has the potential to create a broad spectrum of benefits to the whole community and the environment that can come from understanding where we live through the lens of traditional knowledge. Today, we have brought together a panel of expert community and industry leaders to discuss the importance of understanding our city as an Aboriginal place, how we can build this understanding and celebrate it through design excellence. 
We also look forward to your participation in the conversation, should you wish to be involved. Our moderator is Sky Haldane, Principal Strategic Design in City Design and Greenline. Sky has a passion for how design connects people to place and how reconciliation can be supported through design. Sky is a founding member of the Australian Institute of Landscape Architects Connection to Country Committee, current Victorian Committee Chair and National Committee Member. So thank you everyone, I'll hand over to our Chair. Thank you, Jocelyn. As Jocelyn mentioned, my name's Sky Haldane from the City of Melbourne. I'm a landscape architect and really excited to be here today moderating the session with you. I'd also like to acknowledge that we're on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung country and we'll be um, joining Auntie Joy Murphy um, in a moment for a smoking ceremony. But before we do, I'd like to um, just cover a few housekeeping items. Um, today, we will be filming um, both video and taking some photography as well. If you'd prefer not to be photographed, um, if you can stand over, um, over on that side of the, um, the area, that would be fa fabulous. Secondly, we've got some flyers um, sitting around here. They are to connect you with our engagement platform for today. So you can click on the QR code and it'll take you to Slido. Um, alternatively, you can type in slido.com and the code that's on there and that will allow you to engage with some of the questions um, that we have. Um, and yeah, really bring your perspectives into the conversation as well. In addition, we have this uh, plan of the city here in which you can, I guess, sh share your perspectives on how you see Melbourne as an Aboriginal place as well. Finally, um, we've got Debbie Wood, who's our um, graphic recorder here today. So she'll be cap capturing some of the conversation um, visually for us so that we can communicate that to others. Um, her handle is at Debbie underscore sketches. Deb underscore sketches, apologies. So I'm very excited now to we'll take, take ourselves across to Auntie Joy. And when we return, our speakers will be sitting in the central circle. So if you can leave those seats free and we'll come back and um, join that after the smoking. How about this? <laughs> so, um, Kai Yannabal, which means um, hello to friends and visitors. And I'd especially like to pay my respects to my father. Um, this is his traditional homeland. And it's quite bizarre these days to hear all the, the activities going on, but really enjoyable. Um, first of all, I'd like to begin, though, by acknowledging each and every one of you that are here today. And there's brothers and sisters that are here today. So I want to acknowledge all ancestors, elders and communities across this great nation and our neighbouring islands. For a long time in my life, I've often wondered what it might be like, you know, come my age and where I might be. And the really beautiful thing is that I've outlived my life expectancy as an Aboriginal woman for about 17 years. Um, and you don't get any points for guessing people. Um, <laughs> But that really means a lot to me, I guess, in a number of ways. Um, when we're given this wonderful opportunity, it's about, you know, recognising that. And we've lost so many of our men 
and for our women to die at such an early age, um, you wonder which way our culture and heritage or how it's going to survive. And for me, it's been a really serious moment in my life. And then, of course, with everything that happens in life comes death. And sadly, through the death of my three older brothers, um, who each were known as the Narangitas, which is the head man, um, I'm now the senior elder. It doesn't mean that I have the role to play as a Narangita, and, but it means I have a responsibility and I take that very seriously. And for me to be accountable to the great legacy, the amazing legacy that uh, First Peoples have been given, especially here on Wurundjeri Woi, Wurrung Land. Can I at uh, this time acknowledge um, the City of Melbourne and MP Pavilion? Um, because, you know, it's taken a long time for that recognition and acknowledgement for us to come on to this part of country and to be asked to do ceremony. And whilst I've done many over the years, you know, um, it's probably been now in very smaller increments uh, about five years ago, but in the last three years, it's been a lovely journey, I have to say. There's not so much weight on our shoulders and uh, you kind of feel now that you really are um, welcome, Wiminjika, to be able to uh, perform ceremony. And that, of course, goes back to who you are and where you come from. But in all um, cultures, there is some form of cleansing and a lot of it is similar. And uh, I think, you know, the beauty of ours is particularly with Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people is to say that we have the best belonging ever. And why do I say that? It's because we have access to these amazing gum leaves of which is our belonging. And the more neat, the wind's going to play havoc with me today, but we'll see how we go. So for me, it's, um, you know, when I'm able to pick these leaves near my home, right at my home, um, it just gives me that amazing credibility of being not only lucky, but knowing that what I've been given is that I have to continue to nurture what I've been given because it's there every day and I'm blessed to live in a place where I was born and still live there today where my, grand, my children and grandchildren still live. Not so for so many of our community who are still finding their way back home and also finding family. So this bum bearing, as we call it, is about cleansing for a new beginning. And again, it's another new beginning. It's another time where there's been a lot of effort, a lot of conversation, a lot of dialogue, a lot of heartbreak. <laughs> um, but here we today on a celebration of being able to, uh, the panel and I, um, being able to openly express our views and for others to join in as to what we might see as a beautiful Aboriginal um, design, interpretive. And uh, I'm sure you'll get some interesting stories and some uh, ideas. The cleansing, of course, is also about 
you know, we all have weight on our shoulders. We all have a pain in our hearts sometimes. We all have something that we have to deal with, that we have to manage. And we hope that through the spirit of our ancestors, through our balm bearing, that that will help you heal. Always followed by a cleansing is, of course, a welcome to country. And again, how fortunate are we to be able to have the gum leaves? And uh, as I said, although there are, I think there'll be enough to go around, but this gift is for you. This gift was given to us as this amazing legacy that we have um, to continue to follow that tradition and custom. And for me, it's such a privilege to be able to hand a beautiful branch of gum leaves, which is our belonging for everyone to share. So the way in which we'll do this is we'll pass it on to the first person and ask you to take a leaf and then we want to share. So if you can pass it on to the next person. Thank you. Thank you for accepting this gift because it means now that you are welcome to everything from the tops of those amazing managum to the roots of the earth. And it also means that you join with us to honour the spirits of our ancestors who have nurtured this very land for many, 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 many years, a millennium, whatever you want to call it, but timeless. And we hope together that we can continue to what I've said before is nurture what we've all been given. And now that we're building up a better understanding of who we are and where we come from, then hopefully we'll provide a better place, a better environment for those um, that are yet to come. Um, our language is the Woi Wurrung, Women Jakar, Wurundjeri Balak, Yemen, Kundibik, and you are most welcome to the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people. Should you feel that you'd like to join, come closer, please do that. Um, and just take in the balm bearing. And then also the gift that you've been given. You have a choice. You may keep that as a keepsake, or you might return it to the earth, as I will be doing um, with these ashes. I'll return them to a safe spot here um, for make that then a spiritual place so that hopefully many people can admire and continue to admire the oldest living continuous culture in the world, Nodjkunwa. Thank you. Thank you, Auntie Joy, for your wonderful welcome. Um, I always feel incredibly privileged and um, grateful when I have the opportunity to be part of a smoking ceremony and when you go home and during the rest of the day, the smoke lingers on your clothing and in your hair and reminds you of the experience that you've had in the day, so um, thank you so much for that. So to kick off our conversation today, um, I'd like to recognise again that we're on Wandry Woiwurrung country here in the gardens and I think it can be difficult to imagine the landscape that existed here before um, what we see around us today and the dramatic change that's happened to the land around the Birrung 
since um, the process of city making um, that has occurred since Europeans arrived in the 1830s. Today we understand that central Melbourne has always been an important meeting place for the Kulin Nation. We also recognise the unique value of Aboriginal culture as the longest continuing culture on earth and the deep connection that traditional owners have to country. There's growing community recognition and interest in how the planning and design of our cities recognises and reflects cultural values and enables rich experiences of Aboriginal culture in city life. Legislation is also evolving with the 2017 Yarra River Protection Act, Gwilapjin Birrarung Murren, recognising the river as a living entity, along with the relationship and continuing responsibility of Wurundjeri and cultural practices that are integral to its health and ecosystems. As we support traditional owners in carrying out these responsibilities, we seek to understand how we can understand our city as an Aboriginal place to make our cities more culturally inclusive and sustainable. So now I'd like to throw across to all of you. Um, I'll start off with each of you introducing yourselves and in the process of that introduction, if you could speak a bit about how you see and understand Melbourne as an Aboriginal place and are there particular places or qualities that provide connection for you? Jason, would you like to start? Sure, I was just wondering which end we were going to start on. <laughs> so, good afternoon, everybody. My name's Jason Eads and I'm the director of Aboriginal Melbourne at the City of Melbourne. Um, I've been there three weeks. Um, this is the end of my third week, actually. So um, I've been in Sydney the last three years, so it's, it's coming back. Um, can you just... The, I guess the, the question around, you know, what is um, an Aboriginal city in particular, and I often reflect on what I see when I go to other parts of the world and how that culture permeates through um, and makes that place that, that very special place. I've been very privileged to be welcomed to this place many times by Wurundjeri um, and to have knowledge shared around some things that, um, of this place. And I think many Melbournians still go about their daily lives and just not really realising just how rich and beautiful this place is, full of culture everywhere. And for me, um, it's finding ways in which we can open others' eyes to that beauty that, that we see everywhere. Um, and embrace the embracing of it as something that we as all community can be um, proud of re regardless of our backgrounds. Uh, hello, um, I'm, I'm Annie Joy and um, I guess for me it's about, you know, as I think you know, as Jason has already said, it is about realising and bringing something to fruition. And uh, the way that I see that happening is to make it more obvious. Um, just this is an example of uh, when I was coming down this morning, I live in Hillsville and our fire brigade station had a sign up, uh, a really simple sign, but I didn't get it and, uh, until I was driving along and then realised. And it said, don't park on dry grass, you know, don't park on dry grass. Does anyone get it? I didn't until I was driving along, but I thought, what a simple message. And it made me think. So, you know, we're prone to fires. 
And so um, it means that if you park on dry grass, you know, there's liable to be that ignition of, um, from your car, from the heat of your car, and of course, boom, up you go. And it also makes it difficult for everybody else that might be parked nearby. So I think um, those simple messages are really relevant, and I haven't really thought of one just yet, but I, I thought that's worth a mention. But I'd like to see it become more obvious, like, and I have to mention this too, when I was driving along St Kilda Road, there's birds in the grass, you know, these animated birds, and they're pecking away, and I wonder what birds they're supposed to be. Well, you know, for me, we need to identify them. We need to know what kind of birds. We need to know, we need to recognise native animals to this area. We need to see what they can do. And um, so is this ideas time as well or shall I stop until we've introduced I everyone? think we'll be having the visions at the end. Yeah, okay. But I think <laughs> I'm if, getting excited yeah. and carried away. But I guess the purpose, the intent of this question was really about what, what really allows you to recognise currently um, this place with Pretty much. all that you see around Pretty you. Pretty much nothing. Yeah. Okay, got some ideas later. Um, how do I follow that? Uh, uh, so my name's Sarah Lynn Reese. I'm a Palawa Trawaway woman. So my ancestry is from northeast Tasmania and I live and work across Wurundjeri and uh, Bunurong Banong country. Um, and thank you for the welcome. Thank you very much. Um, I work in architecture, so I work at Jackson Clements Bowes Architects. I'm a lecturer at Monash University. I sit on a number of boards, uh, including, um, or probably most importantly at the moment, co-chair of the First Nations Advisory Working Group for the Australian Institute of Architects. Um, and in terms of recognising this space as an Indigenous space, well, it just is, um, full stop. Um, uh, in terms of what you can tangibly see, I think... Uh, a lot of Western culture focuses on that tangibility and I think what we need to do is work with traditional custodians to understand how we can make not necessarily the intangible tangible for people but make sure that they can read the intangibility in the tangible um, and be that understanding the, the flora and the fauna and what that means from a cultural perspective so not necessarily needing to be told what it is at every point in time or be it that... Um, you know, we make through our designs, through architecture, we make this a place more healthy. Um, you know, architecture is a very destructive industry. Um, and and um, I, I probably say this a lot, but, uh, you know, we have a responsibility to, either, well, effectively our options are destroy, maintain, repair or celebrate uh, in the broad spectrum of what an architectural project can do. And a lot of what we do is continuing the destruction of country. Um, we need to, at a minimum you know, maintain status quo and do no more harm to, um, and then aim towards repairing, being the health and well-being of country, and then celebrating culture. Um, and, you know, there's the saying, if we look after country, then country looks after us. And I think that's really true in the context of how we, um, how we work in the built environment, and that it's not just about cultural representation. That's one aspect of what that is available to us to reinforce culture and identity in place. But it's also about um, re-establishing habitats. And, um, you know, all of the, the flora and fauna that have been, um, you know, displaced through colonisation in the same way that people have, bringing those back. Um, so I, I tend to agree that there's not many places that physically or tangibly recognise that this is an Aboriginal place. Um, but it is. Full stop. Thank you. Anne-Marie. 
Is that on? Yeah, yeah thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, and that's really great to hear that where we are, it just is. It just is. Um, my name's Anne-Marie Bassani. I'm a landscape architect and a senior associate at Aspect Studios. And I think, um, and I, um, I'm also involved in our, um, in the Australian Institute of Landscape Architects. I'm the co-chair of the National Connection to Country Committee and very much advocating that we're engaging with traditional owners and not just engaging, we're actually going a lot further than that in every project that we do. I'm really, I can say I'm probably very privileged to say at the moment, every single project I'm working on in the practice, I'm working with traditional owners. So that level of understanding is coming through, that level of discussions are constantly being built on and a constant level of um, understanding is, is just developing constantly um, and every time and, and every next project we see that where we've come from from the last one to build on the next one. Um, in regards to understanding Melbourne as Aboriginal place, you know, I think we all bring our own level of experience and um, perceptions and even our own bias to that. How is it that you experience this place? Um, I think, as I mentioned, I've been very, very privileged to be able to work at traditional owners and it started with in, Annie Joy and I were just talking, I undertook a studio when I was at university second year, so early 1990s where Auntie Joy, I was down at Corundurk with Auntie Joy and it was just absolutely amazing. And I think even though I was already interested in a greater understanding of um, connection to country and what does that mean and what is that connection, what's that cultural connection, what's that deeper understanding, um, and that's sort of carried right through. I'm also um, very fortunate to also have been married into an Indigenous Victorian family um, that are very strong in culture. So through my professional experience, but also my personal one of, of seeing what that means for communities, seeing it from their perspective and really gaining a great understanding from their perspective of what that means. And I think trying to see it from both, from, from another side as well and, and trying to relate that being back into the work that I'm doing as well. Um, and I think being a landscape architect, you know, if the canvas is our, if the landscape is our canvas, well, the first thing is we should be understanding what this country is. Um, how, can we, how can we justify what it is we do without having the best understanding that we can, the greatest understanding? So, you know, we really need to have that as the first step. You know, speaking to, and I think, you know, with Annie Joy as well, um, but also speaking to elders and the stories of connections and, and bringing that through, um, I think has certainly influenced the way that I see and visit country. I was, I was fortunate enough when I, many years ago, we moved to Adelaide for a few years and bef I'd never been to Adelaide before. And when I, um, my, as soon as I was uh, landed in Adelaide, somebody that I work with gave me a book about Aboriginal Adelaide. And so that was the first thing I read, even before going to the city, even before, part short of going down to the supermarket, that was the first thing I read. So I sort of read about Aboriginal Adelaide before I'd even bothered to walk around any of the streets. And it's interesting enough, then the same friend the following weekend said, I'll take you around to see a bit of Adelaide. And as we're going around, I was sort of just saying, oh, that's, that's where the possum skin cloaks were dried and, oh, there was massacres there. And, you know, and it was really interesting because her perspective was, oh, wow, that's, how do you know? Well, you know how, do, how do you know that? You're not even from here. But I think I was just, I realised just how unique it was for me being in a place, not knowing the place, but trying to understand it from an Indigenous perspective before I saw it in the built context, I think it was just something that at the time probably didn't mean too much to me, 
But over the years, I've realised just what a privilege that is. How many times do we get to know about country before we've seen it, before we've really experienced it? Um, another one is also just about post-colonisation perspective of, you know, we've, it's not, hasn't always been a pretty picture. It's, um, you know, there's place, it's a place of dispossession as well and, and, and massacres and we need, to, we need to be true to understand that as well. We need to acknowledge that as part of this history of, of this place, um, which, you know, for a long time I don't think really has been properly and we're only just sort of coming through there at the moment. Ani Joy and I were just speaking just at the beginning of this session and um, just saying things of things are uh, the interest and the um, understanding is growing. It's growing exponentially of, of just and that's probably more just the last couple of years. Um, we're saying you know probably about five years ago it started growing and it's just exponentially growing every year and you know almost now I can sort of every six months I'm seeing a greater level of understanding across the different areas that we work with. Um, and that contemporary history, that social tapestry, I think, of understanding is really important too, not just that connection of, you know, somewhere for those of you that know um, Fitzroy, um, Gertrude Street, that social connection of, of people from country and they've come, that have also travelled there from other places as well and how they connect to that place, yet that's not... Um, it's more of a built environment, but the importance of that place to um, communities is really important. Thank you, Anne-Marie. And that's a really wonderful segue to the question that I have for Auntie Joy next. So I'll be asking each of the panellists um, a particular question related to their background, I, I guess, and perspectives, but then also invite each of you to respond to, um, to each other's questions as well. So Auntie Joy, as an elder educator and author, amongst many other roles, you generously share your knowledge to enable others to understand Wurundjeri culture and country can you talk a bit about the role that knowledge and storytelling play in allowing the broad community to appreciate Aboriginal perspectives, connections and responsibilities for country? Um, you know, that's, that's a really broad question. However, I think it's been identified with, with uh, the panel speakers. One of the things that I do want to say is that um, Anne-Marie mentioning Fitzroy, you know, a very livable place for our community, but it's not visible. Uh, yeah, there's some artwork and, you know, Charcoal Lane is, is there, but I think non-existent at the moment. Um, and the park where so many tragic things happen, but now people are rebuilding their lives there. Um, but it still faces so many challenges. So my role... Uh, and that I see personally, and I'm, when talking to elders, you know, as well from other countries, um, is that we need to get people to understand who we are, firstly, who we are, what our, not just our background, but how deep that background is and what role it plays in our soul, because that's where it comes from. And secondly, so that if we... You know, if, if we're facing a huge challenge, which we seem to do all the time, there's so many barriers, um, to try and get that understanding of those people. And then it might well be just a simple thing. It may well be that simple sign that I talked about at Yalesville um, that allows people to think deeper, you know, and to perhaps go into their own culture, their own awareness, um, but think very deeply because it's the spirit of the earth and of our culture and heritage that we want to embed so that people can appreciate 
who we are and where we come from, who we belong to. How, how important do you think um, people's access to knowledge in the public realm is to share that understanding? So projects like the Yelling Guth um, work that Wurundjeri has been doing or other ways of people being able to get information about a place that they are visiting. How, how direct or indirect do you think that knowledge access should, should be? Oh, I, it has to be out there everywhere. I think, you know, it's an open book. Everybody's welcome to know about country. We want to share country. We've never said that, you know, we don't want to. We've just been never given the opportunity to. We've not been asked. Um, and that's one of the most pertinent things in life is that when you pay respect, I mean, even walk to somebody's house or, you know, a shop door or something, you either knock in or you knock on that door or someone opens it and then you say, oh, oh and they say, oh, hello, who are you? You know, please come in. We've never had that generosity given to us in terms of country. And then there's also the... Um, you know, the attitude that goes with it. And then, of course, you get bombarded. So people have this downer about, you know, what Aboriginal people do. And sadly, um, you know, they see some of our community not doing the proper things, but that's where all of this understanding, this depth of who we are, where we come from, what we've suffered, really needs to be understood. Accessing that information now is much better than what it was. But, um, and I've learnt over the years, as we all have, that people are too frightened um, uh, to ask a question. You know, I find that as not a reasonable excuse at all. If, you know, if you were dying somewhere out in the desert, wouldn't you ask somebody if there's someone else there, how, what do we do, how are we going to go, you'd have a discussion. So we've just been on the back foot all the time. Thank you, Auntie Joy. And that's can probably a good segue to... Can I build on that, yeah, sure. though? Because I think that's an, an interesting conversation itself, is that often people coming in this space want knowledge and they ask, ask, ask. But I think there's also something about sitting in not knowing and being respectful. You don't need to know in order to be respectful. Um, when we travel overseas and we find ourselves in a situation of a different culture, we do take a step back and observe. We take in. We, we look for the subtleties... Yet we bring our own lenses and stuff to that and try to interpret. But we also wait to be taught. You know, that kind of process of understanding that people will bring you on that journey as they feel that you're ready and that you don't necessarily need to know the answers to everything in order to offer up that respective place. Thank you, Jason. Um, building on that and also some of the um, comments that Anne-Marie mentioned earlier, your team is playing a key role for City of Melbourne in terms of reconciliation. Can you speak a bit about the initiatives your team is involved with that is driving reconciliation and community understanding through Aboriginal Melbourne? What role does truth-telling play in this process and why is this important? How might it change the way we experience the city? I think um, reconciliation is a really interesting um, space to work in because again I think that um, people are looking for explanations of things um, or for places that um, force a reconciliation conversation. 
I think what's really interesting about the work that we're doing and kind of builds upon some of the work that's happening in other levels of government is around truth-telling and allowing the space for community to tell its story on its terms. And I think that that's really important that the community has that opportunity because if we're able to have that layer of community representing itself, telling its story in the way that it wishes to tell it, then I think that reconciliation builds from those things. Whereas if you artificially try and construct something that's just about, about reconciliation, I think what I observe too much is the other kind of looking in and trying to grab things or try and work out um, in some ways to make them feel better. But, you know, I, I do feel that part of reconciliation is the foundation of truth-telling. Like we saw that out of South Africa, that it was led by a truth-telling process to allow people to heal um, within community as well because there's lots of stuff that have, have occurred um, in which community needs time to reconcile within themselves in order to be able to then embrace um, and share that bigger picture with the rest of community. So for me, you know, City of Melbourne has a wide-ranging kind of role in terms of the role that we play, you know, in the built environment, but also in the discussions that we lead with our, you know, the people who live and play in this city and how we engage with them um, and help them open their, their thoughts to seeing this city in a very different light. And so for me, there's a, um, a big focus on how do we engage, how do we have these dialogues and how do we lean in and, and kind of own, um, I guess, parts of what is our collective past. Can I just add a comment? Um, I studied, uh, God, who knows when that was, but commercial principles and practice. Um, and I really don't know why, but I have to say it was not, not long after my father had passed and I was very lost within myself and I had a big responsibility to help my mum with the younger kids. And I was lucky to get into RMIT. Don't know how that happened, but it did. Um, but, you know, for me, uh, kind of going through that journey of studying and what commercial principles and practice meant, it meant to me balancing the books. And I think that was probably my motive because of our community and uh, the atrocities and, you know, what my dad and my mum had gone through personally. But I didn't see that in a monetary sense and I still don't see this and God knows who's booked balance anyway. But I think that's where reconciliation is not the right word. I've never agreed with it right from the start. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's also a two-way thing. Just can't be one way. And, you know, what Jason said is right, but my other side of that is to saying that if we don't talk to each other, then we're not going to be able to build a relationship and bring back um, what this land originally stands for. In, in the absence of a better word, what, how would you describe... If, if reconciliation isn't how you would choose to describe it, what do you think could... <laughs> oh, my God, it's going to get all political. No, I'm not going to go there. But <laughs> I must say that um, uh, I've chosen not to take part in treaty, in the treaty process. 
there are a number of instances um, in my life and uh, one was at sick, um, which I totally disagreed with, but put myself, well, I didn't put yourself, you had to be elected. And so I got elected, and, but I knew it was wrong from the start um, because it wasn't serving the purpose of our community. Um, and I've been one where I've worked across, you know, government or, or levels of government and some of that later in my life was about my purpose so that I could learn what government, how government worked and their construct with communities, which is, well, with everyone really, that, you know, they expect too much, they want a thousand page form to fill in to, you know, to be able to walk down the street or to get a permit to ride your little buggy or something, you know, something ridiculous. And so that's kind of been my way of life that, um, you know, if you find out what someone else is doing, then I'm hoping that that'll make a more efficient and effective journey. And then having said that, though, if, um, like, truth-telling, um, you know, that's part and parcel of my life. If you can't truth-tell, you know, you're just lying all the time. So, you know, if you're not born with that, and I've been very fortunate to come up, be brought up in a great family, and, you know, even with the hardships, my mum always said, you know, never tell a lie. It'll, it'll never serve you any purpose in life. Thank you, Auntie Joy. Can we say, Auntie Joy, can we say it's a respectful shared journey? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think that's good. I, I, I don't bother with titles anymore, Anne-Marie. I just do what I've got to do and how I can do it best. And I think that gives me that independence as well with not being involved in the treaty process. And I've made that quite clear. I was on the, um, you know, uh, working committee. And just one other thing, while, while you're all here, and Jason made mention of it, is that, you know, there's a lot to resolve within our community. There's so much heaviness there. And one of the examples of when we were, uh, that working committee took place was, you know, I put my hand up several times. We've got to have an elders-only meeting and, you know, 50% um, probably were elders who were attending and the rest of the people that were there who were all Aboriginal and Islander, um, they cast themselves as helpers or, you know, I'm the driver or whatever and that support person and that's fine. But when I asked for them to leave the room, um, I'm afraid the committee said, well, we can't, you know, this is, they've got to have this person with them. And, and I said, well, hello, they're with other elders. So that really set the, mo the moment for me. There's still so much that we have to resolve within our community and I'm better off to be independent. And uh, so I told them, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be involved in the treaty process. I'll do what I can outside. Thank you, Auntie Joy. And I guess, too, our topic today is focused around design and the built environment, but it's the opportunity that we have in making real change in that place is so built on all of the resolution of this other work that is happening um, in the background. So um, things won't change tomorrow. This is a long process, and I think as um, people on the outside 
of, of this. We're, we're interested in it and want to be willing helpers um, to that process, but need to create the space for, for it to follow its own um, path and respect that um, as well. Sarah, with your work um, around architecture and the built environment, you play a really um, strong role in bringing Aboriginal perspectives um, to the table and really, I think, demonstrating and creating visibility about the potential of that. Your recent um, exhibition at ACCA really showcased how materiality and connection of um, materials to place can really form part of the identity of, of new, new makings of public space. Um, how do you feel that the profession um, is going in building that broader awareness? Do you think we're responding well? Are there good examples that you can speak of or common pitfalls um, and challenges that built environment practitioners as well as government face in really re reaching some of that potential? Big question. Um, I think that just to build on a couple of other things that were said and then get into answering that question, I think that uh, what we all need to acknowledge is that well, I'll say it first, this is not my country. I don't have the right to speak on its behalf. Um, as a visitor, I have an obligation to follow the laws and values of this country and embody them in the way that I live and work in this place. Um, so in the context of architecture, that means that we're, we've got to get beyond this idea of, um, you know, I do not, sorry, I should preface this, I don't think that putting art in the built environment is a bad thing. I think it's important. But I think that there are so many more layers that need to go into the way that we think about architecture and design and it needs to start from an understanding of those laws and values. So we don't, I don't know the stories, all the stories of this place. I don't know and I probably never will know them and it's not my right to know them. Um, but what's more important is that through engagement with traditional custodians and through co-design or collaboration or whatever kind of um, process you want to call it in the built environment, that we start with those laws and values of country. If we can start there, then we're able to make decisions and we're able to sense check ourselves and we're able to then align with those, those understandings throughout the whole process. So that's not necessarily going to materialise in any way in the design outcome. But if you don't start that process from that place of understanding what your responsibilities are as a visitor on this country and creating something on this country and physically changing this country, then um, it, for me it's not starting from the right place. Um, do I think that we're doing a good job? I think we've got a long way to go. Um, I think that there have been some pretty key changes recently. So uh, this is, there's going to be a few acronyms in this one, so I apologise. But um, we have a document in architecture called um, the National Standards of Competency for Architecture. And so this document governs um, effectively what has to be taught at architecture schools, uh, what you have to prove at the point of becoming registered as an architect and your ongoing education throughout your career. Um, and so the First Nations Advisory Working Group, uh, which represents Indigenous people from all across Australia, um, and um, the AACA, um, worked together to incorporate eight First Nations performance criteria into that, which means that every architecture school now in Australia has to teach this curriculum. They have to engage with the content and they have to find ways that it can be demonstrated to be appropriate because they're going to be assessed on it every five years. So. Um, I, I'm starting to learn the value of a document more so than I, than I ever did. Um, 
I sort of always shied away from this, the policies and the development of those things because I wanted to get my hands dirty and do the work, but I'm starting to really see the value in that and what sort of systemic change that can have because I think there's a lot, been a lot of advocacy um, and a lot of yarns, um, public yarns in this space um, in terms of architecture for particularly the last five years. I'd say the same. It's really built up. Um, I mean, we run a talk series here called Black Architecture, so if you want to come to that, that's happening in two weeks. Small plug. Um, <laughs> um, but we, if we don't, yeah, if we don't start from that place of the values and laws, then we're not going to get anywhere meaningful. It's always just going to be something that's applied rather than embedded, and it doesn't come from that the soul of that place. Um, so all these architecture schools, they're now indigenising their curriculum. It's a bit of a mad scramble. Um, there's not that many Indigenous people working in architecture and all of them are being called on right now by every architecture school, which is about 23 of them, um, to help them do that, um, which is an interesting thing in and of itself because, yes, it's important to have um, First Nations perspectives who are um, Indigenous people working in this space, but it's also more important to have the traditional owners' voices, all the two of them paired together, because, um, you know, when we engage with traditional custodians, not every traditional custodian comes from a design background. Um, and they don't need to come from a design background. That's not the value of engaging with a traditional custodian in the context of a built environment project. We're, we're trained in design. Um, so what we need to do is work together to understand how we can... Um, what has been shared can be translated into something that is meaningful. And that what is meaningful has to be layered. So it has to be... Um, it has to start fundamentally with the health and well-being of country, so we're not doing any more harm. And then we talk about how do we represent, um, how is the culture of this place or the laws and values of this place represented in the design spatially, not just as a, a, a marker on the wall um, or the ground. Um, and then we need to move on to how is there reciprocity in this? Proper um, Reciprocity should probably come first, but... Um, you know, how is this space actually giving back? And it might be that the thing it does is it gives back a habitat to a bird. And it, that happens on a large scale. And, and that is enough. Um, it might be that it needs to be more than that. You know, I often, I think I've said this about 67 times at M Pavilion, so I'm going to say it again and I'm going to keep <laughs> saying it until somebody does it. But, um, you know, we need to figure out where the moments of power are in the process of the built environment. And one of the key moments of power that we don't hear much about is planning. So a project starts, um, um, you know, in, in the context of, you know, there are so many controls, there are so many rules and regulations that we follow. There is so much potential in our planning system to be the carrot or the stick, I don't mind, um, to make things happen. And, you know, that could be making sure that, you know, every local council has a, a group of elders as a reference committee for big projects or for all kinds of projects, um, like we do with Melbourne Water, a referral body. It could mean that um, actually embedded within the planning laws are the values and laws of the country that that project is going to be on. So, and obviously developed in partnership with traditional custodians, but so that it becomes something that happens across every project, not just the ones that we can engage on, because we can't engage on every project. Traditional owners don't want to engage on every project, I'm, I'm presuming. Um, but every project can do something. So, uh, look, I think we've got a very, very long way to go and I don't even know if we'll see the, the future of uh, the Melbourne that I would like to see as, you know, again, visitor. Um, so my opinion is less important. But wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to walk around the city and understand the country when you walk around it, which was the point of the Acker exhibition to get back to your original point. Um, so, um, Nawi, Caroline Briggs and I were commissioned to create an exhibition at ACCA 
um, for the Who's Afraid of Public Space exhibition. And um, it's called Nagi Jambana. And the focus of it really, the fundamental question is understanding what are all the tools in our arsenal um, as built environment professionals working with traditional custodians that we can employ to create a sense of place that is respectful and is of country. So the, the exhibition asks the question, if our public spaces were made from the materials of country, what would those materials be? And the, the um, resolution of that research, um, it's ongoing, it will be forever ongoing, but um, is 55 different materials that are from different countries across Victoria that have been brought in to create a topography of space. And the way that we describe those materials and their seats, because you, you're supposed to be able to touch them and feel them and sense them, and there's no, like, the opposite of what goes into a gallery. And there's so little text because we want people to actually develop a relationship with that material, get to know it, understand it, before they then go and find out all the technical details. Um, and another reason, at least for myself, um, that I did, that we did this exhibition is that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of over talking, having the conversation in practice, or, oh, it's too hard. Uh, we, you know, everyone just does the things that they always do. And, you know, the, even the practice I work in, we use, like, four or five different timbers and none of them or only one of them is actually indigenous to victoria and it's like well we can do better um and so the whole premise of that was going well you know how do we do better and how do we make that process simple but it also opens up a whole lot of questions is it appropriate to extract these materials do these materials come with stories do they have souls do we have a responsibility to acknowledge them in some way to me they're all alive um, so what stories are they telling and how does that inform the way we think about the built environment? You know, there's concrete here, it's got sand in it, that sand probably came from the sand belt down here. You know, that sand belt, how old is that? Where did that come from? Did it break down from a sandstone? Like all these sorts of things, how do we understand it? Underneath us right now is the Melbourne, or Melbourne formation, which is layers of siltstone and sandstone. It's over 420 million years old. But that tells us that this place was probably once a seabed or a wider riverbed and that, you know, the different deposits meant that water was moving at different times. So how can that inform the way that we think about this place in the built environment rather than just this is the story of this place? Yeah. If we leave it at this is the story, then I think we're romanticising it. But if we also are gifted the idea of a story or a story to work with, we need to understand what the values are that are embedded in that story. Yeah. Sorry, that was a long rant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Auntie Joy, did you want to respond to that at all? Uh, it was fabulous what Sarah has just said. Absolutely. Um, God, where do I start? Uh, yeah, look, you know, uh, it's not that uh, elders don't want to be involved in every project. God, I wish we could. Uh, we try, and, but also we've got to give our young people or younger, you know, than ourselves who have not had that experience or that opportunity and for them to learn. So, uh, and they're not always available to come out with us or to be in a discussion or whatever. So, um, one of the things is, you know, sometimes they'll come out with something that's really good. And so, you know, lean on them a bit more. I try to... Um, you know, in, invite those younger people in so that, you know, those stories, for example, we want to share those stories. And it's true, you do have to understand the meaning, the principle, the value of those stories. And, um, you know, it's depth. That's what I was talking about before. So um, the other thing, the, the limitations that we have, and this is very personal with me, but it's still going through it, 
is with that councils um, definitely no planning, definitely no planning. Um, uh, I've been working with these two guys, one's a Wiradjuri guy and, and one we don't call him non-Aboriginal, we just call him a brother, and um, on a number of projects and this was really close to my heart at home and we won it and it was connected very much to a story and we got to stage three and they've pulled the pin on us. They're not going to have this um, installation outside the front of their new civic building simply because the story goes back, I'll just quickly tell you this, it's about um, a quarry where Bunjil created this quarry because um, over a long period of time the Coolum people kept arguing and fighting and, and he kept saying to them, stop fighting, you know, it's not going to do us any good, blah, blah, blah. And so he just got fed up with it, so he reached out for a star. He threw the star and that, of course, um, created the chasm, so this quarry at Mount Lilydale. And, well, I wanted to bring this into reality. I wanted, wanted to realise the whole thing, the value of it, you know, the importance, the significance. And so that's how we got through on it. And they knew all the time that we, we would use the boulders from the quarry, which is now this huge um, housing development area. And what else is new? And, um, but... Um, so we, we've had 101,000 conversations, meetings and whatever, and last September we agreed to it. But the meeting wasn't recorded and for, for some reason there were no minutes, who knows why. So I don't know what you call this guy, but I, I would call him an absolute fool. But he's relied heavily on the building code and said that these boulders, which are probably that high, um, not all of them, they kind of, we layered them, um, they, uh, they need to have, um, they need to be fenced. They need to have something around them for public safety. The lovely climbable uh, requirements. They've pulled the project completely. So I don't want to say anymore because I'm too emotional. Well, that sounds incredibly frustrating, Auntie Joy. Can we just yeah. burn the regulations? Yes. We need to think about, I guess, what's... In, as we approach things from um, from this perspective, we need to understand how our, um, how the paperwork and the processes are working in, in constructively towards us being able to do this this work well. Um, and, and I think maybe even just using you know understanding what the regulations are, but working them through to a greater for them to for a greater understanding of what the actual opportunities are and how can we actually really have those discussions and, and meld them together it's always a very creative uh, way of trying to work through but that's what we need to be as advocates that's what we need to do otherwise we're going to be back Rani Joy just was many months ago yeah yeah I think that moves well into your question um, Anne Marie which is looking at how we can drive greater awareness um, through our own practice in the profession and what are the ways in which we can play a supporting role in, in, the, in these processes? What's the work that we can do as individuals but also to shift some of those processes within our um, project and planning systems? And I see that really as um, sort of really intertwined question in one. Really, we can't, can't answer one without the other. Um, and I think, um, you know, and I think... Um, understanding 
the connection with place is something I only joy and Sarah's just spoken right really well and really clearly um, and a lot better than I could um, say. But I think, you know, our role there, it's really about making sure that we are acting as advocates in every step of the project that we can. Um, you know, educating ourselves as much as we possibly can will help us um, really provide a, a greater understanding for ourselves but a stronger leadership into what it is that we that we can have action for, we can advocate, we can we can speak to those um, that can make change. We need to be the change makers. Um, that's up to us. That's as um, professionals in the built environment. I think that's our role. I'm I'm a non-indigenous um, landscape architect, but I really see um, the place that we have is one to be um, advocates um, and allies at times of trying to to move this where it needs to. Um, I think. The, and in, towards, in regards of planning that you were sort of both speaking about a little bit, and I think I might just touch on, on that a little bit, it was, um, you know, the four main considerations that I think I see from experience that I'm doing on, every, on my projects every day were I think that that early intervention that we can act as advocates and, and advocate for, and I am constantly doing um, as well, but I think we're, we're starting to do it. Um, but we still need to do it better. Is and the four main things are and I just touch on them: enabling self-determination, um, aiding capacity building, um, culturally appropriate engagement or involvement processes. It needs to be more than just engagement. Um, and considering long-term project legacy, um, the enabling self-determination. You know, it's really we need to ensure that it's we're guided by Aboriginal people themselves. That we aren't the ones that are leading the process. Um, you know. Those conversations need to be held at the very beginning and not just a seat at the table, but a leading voice at that table. Um, and Aboriginal people, they're not just stakeholders as, as, as is often seen. They really need to be seen um, as the right holders. And so we need to really be approaching that in a different way, um, including in the governance of the project, which is what a lot of times what I see is the governance of those projects that are just not set up properly. And you're having to go through that whole conversation to work through the governance that's already been set up before you start the project. And so you're just going around um, to make sure it's set up properly. Aiding capacity building, that's the big thing. There's so much, you know, as Andy Joe was saying, and, and I think we've all, and Sarah, we're also saying, there is so much more um, asked of um, Aboriginal communities, particularly over the last couple of years. And there's more, it's not just our industry, but there's other industries that are asking for involvement and more in, and you know, engagement, involvement, a whole lot of things. But you can't ask so much more of a community without actually helping provide resourcing to help that being undertaken. And that's a big part. I'm seeing in a lot of the projects as well that community, yes, they really want to be engaged in the projects, but they just don't have the capacity. They're getting pulled from every direction. So where do they, they have to lay priorities. That's the best they can do. And, you know, sometimes your project is not the priority. You just, you need to understand that. But for you to be, for us to enable to do that, we need to make sure that that's almost the first conversation. We're speaking with communities and saying, would you be interested? How can we, and if you are, how can we help you be involved in the level that you want in the project? It really needs to be the first conversation before any part of the planning. Um, culturally appropriate engagement processes, you know, um, if we've already lined in a project where we might think the engagement or the involvement might be, we've already gone too far. We've already spoken for community. Again, it has to be that first conversation. It's not like part of the project might think, oh, 
that's great. We think that might be really relevant in that area. No, we've, we've taken away that enabling opportunity of self-determination. We've just removed it. Let's have that conversation. There's a couple of projects I've worked on and once we've had that conversation, it could have taken a very different turn than where it was. So if we'd started thinking about it and then had that conversation, I'm sure we would have gone down one track, in which case the conversation with community has gone down a slightly different track but it's been for the better for the project. So I think we just need to make sure that we don't preempt and we don't get to the end of concept stage saying, yep, we'll engage with them next time or we'll involve them later on. No, they need to be you know, in, you know, well involved um, as, a, um, as a rights holder at the very beginning. Writing the brief, exactly. First steps, writing the brief together. Let's get, we think this is a project. What do you think? And I think that comes back to, to what the City of Melbourne's looking to do through this Design Excellence Program is also understand as, as the client and initiator of, of projects, how do we work best to be able to shape those projects with, with Wurundjeri and with the other traditional owners um, that we have so that we're not forecasting the whole process ahead, ahead of that. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think the last thing I was mentioning was considering long-term, the project legacy and community benefits. Whenever I look at projects, I always look at, well, what's the benefit to community? Because I know the benefit to pro the project will be there no matter what. It will come out of what we see as the benefit to community. Um, I've sort of done a review on some projects many years ago when I was talking at a um, planning conference and I thought, oh, I'll just speak about, I'll just go back and review what I saw as the benefits to the project. And I thought, okay, now I'll review the benefits to community. And what I realised was the benefits to community outweighed the benefits to project three times to one. And that just made me so excited to see that. I thought, this is right, because not only is it benefits to community, they are also benefits to the project, but we see them in a slightly different way. And I think sometimes we separate them. Um, and, you know, perhaps we shouldn't always separate them. Um, you know, and how can... Um, you know, I think how can our projects also aid in building an understanding of those community, of people that visit our projects, experience our projects? Like, how could this place be designed in a way that people who experience this country see it through a different lens? And that's what we really want, people to see this through a different lens, um, a different way of understanding. Thank you. That brings us to the final question to the panel before we open it up um, to audience questions. I'll ask each of you, can you describe your vision of what the city would look and feel like if we were able to acknowledge, fully acknowledge and celebrate Aboriginal culture in Melbourne's built environment? Who'd like to start? Well, I wonder if it's not appropriate that Aunty Joy shares that oh, given her, okay. you are a traditional owner. <laughs> um, I want to see a big change. I'd like to see a big change before I leave this earth. Um, you know, uh, before me, before them, for generations now over what, nearly 250 whatever years, it's been bloody hard work to survive, let alone get the opportunity we're given now. So I'd love to see change. I think it has to be... Um, it has to be, you know, adding on to self-determination, Anne-Marie, is the old self-management. And this land can still self-manage itself, you know, to a degree, so long as traditional owners are involved right from the start. 
Um, there's so many things to consider, you know. I don't need to go tell you, but the underground pipes and whatever, just, just the surface here, for example, um, you know, really needs to be seriously considered. We need to, and we're able, very much able to include the flora and fauna. And I see that in um, the, the fauna in an animated way. And I'll go back to my birds because I don't know what poor birds, are, who, they're, who they're supposed to be, but I think that's really cruel, just having a bird there and we don't really know what it is. We know that it's pecking and it's hungry, but, you know, if I was coming to a... Um, Wurundjeri country, I'd want to see, oh my God, what's that? Or my kids or my grandkids. So my vision, and you know, it's a little bit out there, but I, it's very doable in my opinion, with all we've, you know, what we've got on today, is like two kangaroos, two mamams having a fight, you know, literally, because those birds over there, I don't know if you've seen them, but they literally go backwards and forwards. So we can show that beautiful strength, that beautiful posture, what a kangaroo looks like. We, the naming of it. We can show how they use their tail in fights and just really simple stuff, you know? So animating of, of, of um, animals would be just delicious, I reckon, and I'd love it. Along the banks, you know, of the Birrarung, we could do that food and plant trail that everyone could benefit by. They could, you know, um, learn about not only what this land was like, but it's still conceivable and you learn much more deeper, Sarah, about what's underneath the ground and purpose and all of that. And there was a third thing, but I think it's gone. Um, I think it's gone. Um, so, yeah, I just want to see change and I, I think it's quite doable. Thank you. See, I think it's really important to, to hear that because you can hear the animation, the excitement about what's possible for someone whose country it is. And so, like, for me, it's not about what I want out of Melbourne, it's about how I help enable that and use the tools and stuff that I have or that I've been given um, to help make that process happen. And it kind of goes back though to this question before, and I hope you don't mind me sharing, but we were talking before the session started about the pressures on Wurundjeri um, that come from also this level of activity. It's great people want to engage, they want to have the conversations and it's not even in one respect about resourcing in terms of providing funds. As, as we were talking about, this is about people and there's limitations on how much Wurundjeri can do. In that kind of environment, I'm really interested to work out what do we do to help as opposed to providing another layer of hindrance. You know, being able to practically work through on, you know, what does that look like for Rundry? So when we talk about self-determination, um, what, what does that manifest itself as? Um, so that we're able to work through in, in some ways to help lighten that burden. Well, um, Anne-Marie, you mentioned capacity building and that's what it is. You know, there needs to be a... a what's the word? I can't even think of the word. However, we need capacity building because we're you know, a very young community. Um, we have very few elders. And then, of course, we've got kind of this generational gap where we've got abundance of young people coming through. And, you know, um, like I said before, it, it's a lack of knowledge, lack of experience, and not through their fault, but because of, you know, uh, colonisation and its impact, it's stopped 
that continuance to a degree. So that's the capacity building for our, our others who don't get to experience that knowledge. So I guess a program, Jason, is the way to do it. That enables, like I was saying, it's not always possible for our young people or younger people to, um, you know, come along to this thing. They have to have a job and all that kind of stuff. So, look, there's stuff happening out there with fire burning and... and you know, our young people are really in trying their hardest to get engaged. Uh, they're seeing not only the damage it does, but they're wanting to try and, um, you know, stop that. They want to be there. They want to they want to join the fire brigade, but they don't feel that they have the capacity or the knowledge, and in some cases, the nouns themselves. So we need to build them up. Good question. Thanks. <laughs> I think... Um we need to, the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that we're not post-colonisation. We live in a um, um, settler colonial structure, um, which means that colonisation is ongoing within the systems that exist, that create barriers that prevent Indigenous people from having choice. Um, not necessarily um, being included, but having a choice to be included in the way that they would like to be included. So if we can acknowledge that, then I think that what needs to happen in the short term is that every single system that exists, and I mean system that's been imported to this country, needs to be examined, reviewed and updated to make sure that there are no barriers that are preventing Aboriginal people from, from having the same choice as everybody else. Um, if we do that, then, I, you know, maybe that is planning, maybe that is <laughs> the building regulations, maybe that is, like, in architecture, the NSCA, maybe that is curriculum in education. You know, all these things, all of them need to be reviewed and they need to all go back to that starting place of, well, whose country are they on? What are the values and laws of that country? And then is everything else serving the purpose of understanding that? And I don't mean that to be a really abstract thing, I mean that to be a very real thing. It needs to be real, it needs to be lived, and these documents that we are governed by need to reflect that. Um, so I think, you know, the future, I mean, from a physical point of view, the future, I'd love to be able to walk around this country and understand by looking at it that we're on Dargar formation and that, you know, that this is a, um, a brackish um, swampland and all those sorts of things. I'd love to be able to read that in the country because it's been taken away, but how can we bring it back? So from a, from a I guess, personal perspective, um, not my country, but I think that would be um, an outcome that would allow us to be able to read country again in the built environment, and there's multiple ways we can do that. But fundamentally, we need to figure out what are those barriers that are stopping us from being able to do the things that need to be done or stopping um, Indigenous people or stopping country from um, living its rights and values, and then we need to address those. You know, we did the Birung Parkland Studio um, with the Birung Council last year at uni, um, teaching at uni, and we were talking about well, what are the rights of the river? It's got a right to flow, it's got a right to flux, it's got a right to be a home, it's got a right to be a habitat. It's currently, if you know, if a law of this country is not harming the waterways, we have harmed that waterway. So how, as our responsibility as people who, uh, you know, regulate that, how can we reverse it? How can we change it? And, you know, we probably can't go back to what we had before, but how can we give it back those rights? I don't know. A lot of things to be done. I think that's really interesting. You know, it's, it's, it's the rights of country, but, you know, and as way, it's really great to hear, you know, the design excellence. It's about um, ensuring we are enacting 
self-determination that it is being led by Aboriginal people and it is um, directing where that process needs to go and it's built on, you know, strong, trusting, genuine relationships and the rest will come out of that. If we build it, we need that strong foundation. So design excellence is about having that strong foundation. If the strong foundation is there, the rest will come. Can I just add um, just to both of, uh, both of you what you've said, if I can remember. Oh, gosh. Um, okay, but I'll go back to... It might come to me, I'm sorry. But uh, the thing that I, I want to see is... Um, you know, the buildings that we have, I mean, you can see them anywhere all over the world. You know, light them up, do something with them, and it, it's doable again. And just like, you know, um, at, with the Grocon building, how we have that beautiful a picture of Barak, and you can... It's so emblematic of what country is, you know, the Narangita of this country, and, you know, hopefully people will ask the questions, but if we don't see it, if they don't see it, then, you know, we're, we're blinded by these buildings. So, um, architecturally, you know, I think that, you know, what you're saying is really great about, um, Sarah, is about doing all those things that need to be considered, realistically considered, um, and just like this project that's absolutely shattered me. I, 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 I can't even bear and I won't go to those new offices, and I'm a bloody ratepayer and been there all my life, and my family are ratepayers. They just don't realise what they've done to the spirit of that story, and it's their loss, their loss. And it shouldn't be anywhere else but there. And that's the understanding, Anne-Marie, that you're talking about, you know, that it is the... Um, what, what, uh, that advocacy that you're so strongly pushing, you know, is really, really important. We didn't have anyone that was advocating for us. Well, we thought we didn't need it, but then when it come to crunch time and we're told we had to have these fences around these boulders, and, you know, when I referred to Treasury Place, I said, I worked at Treasury Place, you know, I've never seen anyone try to jump a boulder there. And then I went to a, a daycare centre just recently and... You know, there's this beautiful mound of, of boulders that have got been picked up by, you know, river or some quarry site. And the kids climb up and down them every day. They're this high where they've got a big cubby house, you know. Anyway, so those, that's what I wanted to say. Those two points are really quick. And with Jason and the program that he's going to build for Unchifica, you know, capacity <laughs> building our community, then I think we're on the road. Yeah, I think those three, those three points, they're really strong elements of where we should go. Yeah. Thank you for summarising that so well, Auntie Joy. And I think it's beholden on us to understand, um, I guess, the privilege of those stories being shared and then how we um, suitably carry those through in the work that we do and champion um, for them. We're at time. Um, I'm just mindful that I would like the opportunity for the audience to ask a question, um, if there's anyone who has a burning question. I got a uh, quick kind of, but possibly un unusual kind of question. You might notice that this microphone here has, doesn't have a wire going between here and there. Because um, the, the, uh, the idea that architecture in the 21st century is largely electromagnetic, like the control of people through communication systems is actually like, you know, is, you know through communication systems. And I'd just like to make a, a kind of a reference to a work that's also down at ACCA. 
Stephen Rolls' work, um, uh, that where he's, he's put the the, uh, the Wi-Fi, he's called Aboriginal lands, and I think it's really an interesting provocation that I'm kind of attempting to make here to not just be thinking of territory as in the land, but it's the electromagnetic spectrum, and that in a way these systems of communication are effectively running like a electromagnetic razor wire through the dream time as far as I can tell. You know, and, that's, and maybe the question for the city of Melbourne is, is it possible to roll back some of this system to actually open, because it's really these systems that constitute the colonial, the ongoing colonization of all of us, but very much the, uh, the kind of indigenous people. So what's, uh, what, is it, what is the possibility of, of, you know, can we have an electromagnetic free zone where we might be able to get back to some kind of tabula rasa of, of kind of, you know, that's a bit of a bit of an ask, but is that okay? Is it, we can do, can we do that? <laughs> Does anyone have any comments to make on that? Yeah, I will. Um, <laughs> I think that um, those things divide us and they make us less connected, but they also connect us. So it's about finding the right balance of how can something like the, the item in the exhibition that you're talking about um, give us that provocation and make us think, but also how do we actually stop and connect to the country that we're on and find our own ways to connect to the country that we're on? And we can be obviously ideally guided through that process with traditional custodians, but um, everybody needs to form their own relationship with the country that they now live on. And Danielle Fromick, who's an Indigenous spatial designer, Badawang Yuan woman, she says that she, for every project that she works on, she has to fall in love with country. And I think that we all need to stop but that's our responsibility as individuals. That's not necessarily, I'd say, the responsibility of the city of Melbourne to pre prevent that from happening. Um, but all of that, you know, that's they're different. People understand, um, absorb, uh, gain, and learn things in a different way. And for some people, it will be that technological interface with all of the energy floating around in the air. And for others, it will be the spiritual energy of a place that they they sit and connect to. I think we have to embrace all of them, but we have to make sure all of them are led by Indigenous voices in some way so that whenever anything that is particularly Indigenous is spoken about, it comes from country and it comes from the people who can speak on behalf of country. I wonder too whether technology gives us a lot of opportunities to sort of see past some of this change in the built environment too. And thinking back to the Rising Festival and the Rivers Sing installation, that um, Deborah Cheatham and others had curated. For me, that was one of the most powerful spiritual experiences of the river that I've ever had. And to some degree, it helped me to see the river without um, all the buildings and, and the change. So I wonder also with the Yellingooth um, work as well, whether technology gives us another lens to see through when we can't necessarily change the full built space, but... Um, it's a slightly more adaptive way of us being able to change that lens. I think as well, it's, um, as I was saying before, it's up to individuals to educate. We all need to educate ourselves. I think it's for us to also find that connection that we have with country and that noise between that connection. How do we work through that noise? Where do we, where do we um, dial that noise up where it's relevant? And where do we really just try and put a silence on it where it's not? 
I was having a conversation with an, um, an elder from WA a few years ago um, and he was talking about um, the way that they... Um, I'm trying to tell this story without telling this story. Give me a second. Um, he was talking about the way that they... Um, not profile, but profile the young people in their community and watch them and guide them and bring them up. And the lesson that from that story that he told me that I took away was that we all need to find our own way to connect with a place or with something. And, you know, for me, um, I love systems and data and information, even though I'm a built environment person. And so maybe my first way into understanding country is to understand the ecological vegetation class and the geology and all those sorts of things and then build from there. And that's one way of developing a relationship. For somebody else, it might be just sitting in that space and listening to the wind through the she-oak trees and hearing country and developing a connection that way. Like, we all have to find our own way. And I think that having all of those things available to us, whichever avenue you can go in through first, then I think they'll all res result in the same outcome, but they all need to be there. I just want to say something, it's probably going to sound absolutely stupid, but electromagnetic for me doesn't excite me in any way. Um, I know we have to have it um, and it's here, but how do we overcome it? And I think, again, that's that balance and it's about that, what the land, what the animals, uh, anything that has a noise to it um, can be reflected. and. You know, for me, when I, I feel that I've just had enough of the city and I want to go home, I want to go home to that peace and quiet, but why can't we have that here? Why can't we have, you know, the ripple of the waters? Why can't we have the wind blowing? Why can't we have the noise of the, noise of the emu, you know? Um, those are the sorts of things that I would, would like to see that maybe plateau that you know, the busyness and the hustle and the bustle. And when people relax in a park, they can hear those, if it's not Moomba. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, um, ad adding that... Um, what's the word? I can't think of it. But adding, adding that, that moment of, of tranquil, if you like, and feeling that you were there thousands... Not thousands of years ago, but, you know, 300, uh, 300 years ago or whatever... It's still there. Bring, we can bring it out. And if, if it has to be, which I'll use a very simple word because I don't really understand all that other stuff, but, you know, um, amplifying what, what needs to be found to, to be enjoyed again. I enjoy that. I, before I came back to Melbourne late last year, I went, went on a tour with Aunty Margaret Campbell in Sydney. And she took us around to some places in Sydney that are still very special places to community. And I remember one place that we went to, one of my team members asked Annie Margaret, how do you hear the country when you've got all this around you? And Annie Margaret looked her in the eyes and said, I just hear the country. I don't, I've learnt to block all of that. Yeah, and you know, she's like, this place is just so special. It's all I hear. And it, it, I guess in, in some ways, I think she was hinting towards things like deep listening about how to hear country, respond to that country and block out some of the other noise that's there trying to distract you. Um, and I, I found that 
you know, so true in built-up environments like cities because I think people just see all of that and forget how much of, well, in this case, Wurundjeri culture is still here and country is still here. I absolutely agree, but for those who don't have and can't feel deep listening, I want everybody to be able to feel that. Thank you. That is the perfect way for us to finish this afternoon's discussion. Did you have one more question? Thank you. Um, Anne-Marie, you talked about the fact that over the past five years there's been great appetite and interest in, in supporting design translation. Um, both in the landscape professions as well as architecture. What does, what does excellence in design look like and what are we critiquing? Is it, is it the process or is it the manifestation of the design outcome? And most importantly, who does the critique? Yeah, that's a really good question. Thanks. Um, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, what I was mentioning before, it's more, it's, you know, it's not, it's about the process, but to ensure the um, excellence is making sure, from my perspective, it's very much about ensuring that it is being led by the traditional owners of that land that we are working on um, and that they are directing how that process should go, um, that we are building trusting, genuine and trusting relationships with them. And what is the success of that? That's not for us to, to say. What I think the way I look at that is to speak to community afterwards. And I sort of look at the success of um, have we been able to develop a stronger relationship, a stronger understanding and how we bring that through and a community happy with that. I don't really, you know, sure, if the broader community, that's fine, but I'm, I'm talking that the, the traditional owners as community, are they happy with the process? To me, that's where the importance is. And if we've got that right, then the, then the project will be right. I guess as a follow-up to that, and perhaps as a question more for Sarah, to what extent do the new standards need to reflect a new way of critiquing architectural outcomes, one in which the process of engagement is critiqued, one in which one gives you know, authority to the only joys of this world who's had a really bad experience as it relates to the manifestation of one design outcome, and then we can talk about how architecture has been used, continues to be used as a tool of colonisation. Well, what is the process that surrounds that? The process that surrounds that is architectural awards programs, built environment awards programs, because they're, I guess, the manifestation of the question that you're asking um, in reality. And there's a lot needs to change in those. Um, you know, the way that that works is that you've got, say, uh, you know, eight minutes to talk about your project. Um, and one person talks about the project and uh, then you're saying you're delivering this project to a panel of um, your peers uh, who may or may not have any understanding of country or working with traditional custodians or embedding the values and laws of country into a project and then they're responsible for assessing it. I mean, I see all of those sorts of things as, you know, awards programs are great. They're, they're a point in time in which we um, celebrate excellence in architectural design but we also write the rules for what is excellent, so the criteria need to change, obviously, and the criteria will have to change. Like, the document I was talking about before is um, the NSCA represents the absolute 50% minimum pass rate. It's the minimum requirement. And it includes things like understanding in, in, um, intellectual property and in, um, Indigenous intellectual property, 
in terms of cultural intellectual property, I can never say that. Um, it includes understanding engagement processes and how they might be different in different communities. It, in, it includes understanding um, traditional owner traditional owners' aspirations to care for country and what our responsibility is to um, ensure that happens within the built environment. How they then get translated and, um, and educated across our professions is one thing. Um, how they then get built into something that is much more aspirational, that informs the awards processes as one example of what you're talking about is another thing. Um, but we have to, I guess, again, it comes back to the power of the document. Well, what document is it that determines the criteria and how do we get involved in changing that document? That's that's the starting point. And that might be having a set of protocols around it that if there's an award that's Indigenous that's being awarded, it should have traditional owner voices involved. If there is an Indigenous project, it there should be something from the traditional custodians that says, yes, we agree, and maybe that should be anonymous so it's not going through the design team so they can't change it. Um, you know, there's all these sorts of things, little tiny processes that we could change in the systems that we have so we don't have to overthrow them, but we need to take five minutes, sit and think, well, where are those barriers and what's actually... Where are we putting people in positions that they don't have the authority to be in? Um, as in non-Indigenous people not working in this space, judging Indigenous projects that have gone through processes with traditional custodians, and how do we make sure that we flip that? I think there's no one answer, right? It's a whole series of little things that need to happen in that process. And, I mean, awards is just one example of that to illustrate the point. I might just add to that just very briefly. I think we're also starting to see change not only in projects the last couple of years, but even the awards. I think for Institute of Landscape Architects, there's actually... Um, you also need to include um, some information coming directly from the traditional owners, from their perspective, their point of view. How, what was the process? Did it meet communities' expectations? How was it undertaken? And so that's, that's a great step. I think there's still a lot of work to go, but we're slowly getting along that, that track. Can I just add to that, Theo, in terms of the words design of excellence, oh, those three words. Um, I could say it's a bit glorified. <laughs> Uh, you know, and I was trying to think of, God, I, I was set I'm not into titles, Anne-Marie, but I was, I'm seriously thinking about that now. And <laughs> uh, I think what, I, what I'm trying to say is from all the comments that have been made, and they're excellent, is about an unimaginable place of country. No, an unimaginable... Somebody can help me, I can't find the right words. Um, I was going to say um, an, an unimaginable design of excellence and I went, no, no, got to get rid of design of excellence. So an unimaginable... Um, God, it's gone. But do you know what I mean? It's like that this could be the, oh, the biggest showcase that could be seen in our lifetime by having something that is a design of excellence. and But a lot of people still think it's unimaginable. And there are also a lot of factors that could make that unimaginable. So all that's been said today, it really just has to all to come together so that there can be this unimaginable, made imaginable by design of excellence, for want of better words, if that makes any sense. Thank you. I'm mindful we've gone over time, but thank you. This has been a super valuable conversation this afternoon and hopefully the first of, of many continuing. Um, I'd like to thank our panel um, for their time, their generosity and their perspectives um, this afternoon.
if you'd like to share your appreciation. And thanks also to all of you for being here and, and sharing the discussion this afternoon. We have two more um, talks in our Design Excellence series, the next of which is coming up on the 31st of March on the Thursday evening. It will be talking about designing resilience, which will ask how do we design to survive responding to a climate and biodiversity emergency. And as Sarah also mentioned, she has her Black Architecture program coming up um, during Design Week. So um, stay tuned for that on the 21st to the 23rd of March. Thank you again, everybody. Enjoy your afternoon. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.